You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the newsroom to you live. Hello and welcome to Post, Washington Post Live. I'm Michael Duffy, opinions editor at large here at The Post. Our guests today are two distinguished journal, two distinguished diplomats, Michael McFall, former ambassador to Russia, and William Taylor, former ambassador to Ukraine. Sorry, guys, I almost turned you into journalists. That's, that's the worst thing. Um, thank you for joining us this morning. Thanks for, thanks for having us. Glad to be um, here. President Biden is, it will speak this hour uh, in Poland, as you both know. Uh, but yesterday, he made a dramatic visit to Kiev. Uh, at, uh, Ambassador McFall, tell us what the purpose you think that visit was and what signal it sent to Moscow. Well, I think the purpose, which I fully support, was to signal to the Ukrainians uh, that we are with them. Uh, we're going to stay the course as long as it takes, as the president said. Uh, I thought it was a very dramatic, symbolic visit. But I also think there was probably concrete conversations between our two presidents about what it takes uh, to try to end this war. Uh, my sense in talking to Ukrainians and U.S. officials back and forth is, is there a bit of a, a gap in terms of the timeline. We keep saying as long as it takes, and the Ukrainians hear the word long, and they don't like to hear that word long. They want a shorter war. So on the, on the imagery, fantastic. But my guess is there was also a very substantive conversation about could the United States lead the NATO alliance to do more faster, particularly on weapons, more weapons, better weapons uh, delivered in a much faster way. Ambassador Taylor, do you agree with that? Uh, do you think the conversation turned behind uh, closed doors into, into timetable and perhaps even how it ends? I do, Mike, I do. And I agree with Mike McFall. Um, uh, the way to make this war shorter um, is to give the Ukrainians what they need to win. Uh, President Biden keeps saying for as long as it takes. Um, what he needs to say is for as long as it takes to allow, enable the Ukrainians to win this war. They can win this war. If they get the weapons and the other, other equipment, other intelligence, other training, if they get all that they need, which they are promised, um, then they can win. And they can win soon, Mike. They, they can mount an offensive uh, within months uh, that will be able to, you know, break through Russian lines. The Russians are trying to dig in right now. They want to try to hold what they've got. That's why they're interested in, you know, stopping this at a ceasefire. They know they're losing, so they like to hold on to what they've got. And the Ukrainians don't want that. The Ukrainians want to end this war soon. And they can if we give them the weapons, as, as Mike just said. Uh, to both of you, then, uh, do you think that an offensive by the Ukrainians is possible? And what each of you might think is needed to bring that about, it sounds like, in the next 90 to 120 days? Do you have a view? Uh, Mike McFall first. Uh, I wanted you to go to Bill first on that, because that's a really hard question. Um, uh, joking aside, um, they believe they have the, the, the strategy to do so. Uh, they want to divide the north from the south of the occupied territories that the Russians hold, uh, cut the land bridge, as it's sometimes called, um, and they want to threaten Crimea. Uh, now, publicly, of course, they always say they want to take back all their territory, but this is the counteroffensive that they're planning. Uh, in their view, uh, talking to Ukrainian officials, they need more effective uh, offensive weapons, uh, so longer range missile systems, right? They have the HIMARS uh, uh, and that system, they want uh, ATACMS. It's a longer range missile system. 
that they believe will give them the ability to attack positions in Crimea, uh, uh, all along the, the, the bridges that connected Crimea, as a way to, to launch this counteroffensive. They also need tanks, of course. They're happy about the announcements they, that they have received so far, but they think that it's not enough. Uh, and finally, there's a, been a new conversation about air support, fighter aircraft. A lot of focus on F-16s in the conversations and the media. And uh, Bill and I were just at the Munich Security Conference. Bill, I think I heard F-16s uh, a dozen times. Um, I think everybody forgot that there, there was a deal on the table months ago for the delivery from our NATO allies, former members of the Warsaw Pact of MiG-29s, uh, several dozen of them. Uh, but, but air support, again, I'm not a military general. I, I'm just telling you what I hear from Ukrainian colleagues. They think that with more of that kind of support, they'll be successful in the spring uh, and the summer. Uh, Ambassador Taylor, there are obviously some reason why uh, the Biden administration has not yet come forth with these weapons. What are they concerned about? What holds their, what stays their hand, really? So, Mike, the, uh, the Biden administration, to its credit, has moved up the ladder. Uh, we were going way back. Um, we weren't providing any lethal weapons whatsoever um, in 2014 when the Russians first invaded. Um, we gave some training and some equipment, uh, but not lethal equipment. And um, that changed. Um, we started again, in, actually, in the Trump administration, maybe over his objection. But nonetheless, we provided, the United States provided lethal weapons in terms of like stingers, these uh, anti short range anti-aircraft uh, weapons. Um, now we've gone all the way up the ladder, Biden administration has gone all the way up that ladder to Patriot missiles, the top of the line of, uh, of our ability to shoot down uh, Russian aircraft and missiles uh, and ballistic missiles. Uh, the Patriots are very sophisticated, the top of the line, That so that trend up. Same thing, Mike, on, on like, uh, uh, anti-tank weapons um, that, that we didn't provide at the beginning. We had a hard time coming to that conclusion. We came to that decision. Now we're all the way up to the high Mars that Mike just talked about. We never gave them tanks and other armored equipment. Now we are giving them Bradleys and Strikers and Abrams tanks. We've all begun. So the, the, the answer here, Mike, is that the, it's taken some time uh, for the administration to make the decision um, on what to provide. Some of it has to do with logistics. Some will have to do with training, which we already talked about. Uh, but some of it has to do with just a hesitation uh, to provide the most sophisticated weapons we've got. They've, the Biden administration has moved in the right direction, and I think they're not done. I think they will make some more decisions soon. Um, Ambassador McFall, do you see signs elsewhere in Europe that uh, support for uh, more military aid is growing, or is, is that uh, perhaps hitting a plateau? Talk to us a little bit about how our NATO allies are, as we've moved up the ladder, what, uh, what's the status of their support for this? Because of course, they're closer. Well, they're having the same domestic debates that we're having uh, within their governments and within their administrations. Uh, just talking to a very senior German official a few days ago in Munich, uh, he recounted for me that the, the, the very difficult decision for them to take to provide tanks um, and they're a little disappointed, by the way, that after they made that very hard decision, they expected others uh, to come into the fore uh, that, that have uh, German-made tanks, and they're disappointed that they didn't follow them. So I think this debate is a hard one in, in all the capitals of Europe. I don't, I don't want to claim I'm an expert on all countries in the alliance, 
What's striking to me when I look at public opinion polling, however, including in Germany, is that societies seem to be ahead of their elites right now in terms of support for Ukraine. Uh, and that's interesting. That, that, that's something that usually doesn't happen on foreign policy. It's usually foreign policy elites dragging society to support their these issues. And I give a lot of credit to the President Zelensky and his government for the incredibly effective way that they have messaged uh, um, why it's important to NATO, the West, the free world, uh, to support their fight in Ukraine. They like to remind us all, and I completely agree with them, that this is not just a, you know, some people describe this, this is just a normal territorial war in Europe. We've had these for a thousand years, same as it ever was. Why, why should we care? Uh, that's the wrong way to understand this. President Zelensky instead says, this is a fight uh, between autocratic Russia and democratic Ukraine. So values are at stake. This is a fight that will not end in Ukraine if Putin wins. Uh, and if he succeeds in Ukraine and, and transforms, God forbid, Ukraine into some forward operating base for the Russian military, guess what? Our allies will feel much more threatened and we'll have to spend more money and send more American soldiers to the front line to defend our NATO allies. So it's not just something that can be contained uh, uh, in U Ukraine in terms of security. And then finally, you know, we we know what uh, wars in Europe look like when they're wars of annexation. In many ways, the United Nations was created in 1945 to end wars of annexation. And by the way, another very big principle uh, embodied in the beginning of the United Nations was to end uh, empires. Uh, and for decades after that, we spent a long time decolonizing the world. Those were fantastic achievements, even in the construct of a Cold War. Today, those norms are being threatened. We cannot allow annexation to become normal again. If think about that, if, that, if we're back to that, that has implications for all over the world. That's an anarchic, very dangerous world that I don't want to go back to. And same with colonization. Let's be clear. Putin is trying to recolonize Ukraine after independence 30 years ago. Imagine that in other countries, other places around the world, that 30 years after independence, uh, the British or the Portuguese or the French decided, hey, wait a minute, I want to go back in and try to recolonize. We have no interest in seeing that. Uh, I think Zelensky talks about that in the right way, and I hope the rest of the world hears his message. Ambassador Taylor, because President Biden's in Poland today, it's worth spending a, a moment on that. There's some speculation that attends the visit that the NATO presence, NATO's presence uh, in Poland will increase perhaps coming out of this session along the lines of what um, uh, Ambassador McFaul was suggesting perhaps. I, I have a question about uh, what the, some 8 million Ukrainians have left Ukraine, that m many of them have gone to Poland, many have gone to Germany and other countries surrounding um, Ukraine. W what pressure does that put on some of those countries? Uh, and and has it had an impact on their support uh, for uh, the war, or at least their aid to uh, Kyiv that you can see? It is not, Mike. It is amazing the support that uh, that the Europeans have provided um, to the Ukrainians, not just military. They provided some military, as we just described. However, um, We've we've both been Mike and I've both been in uh, into Kiev and in getting there you go through Poland um, and what you what's striking about Poland is as you say there are millions of Ukrainians there mostly women and children 
um, some other families, they are in homes. They are in Polish homes and hospitals and schools and jobs. The Polish people have been amazing um, in their welcoming uh, to the Ukrainians. They know uh, that uh, this is not permanent. They know that the Ukrainians want to go back, and many have. Uh, there's a flow back into Ukraine from Poland and from the other East European nations um, that that is that we're seeing because the Ukrainians want to go back to their home. They want to rebuild Ukraine, and they can do that at home, not not in uh, in Poland uh, or in other places. But the but the outpouring of support, not just Poland, by the way, it's also in Slovakia, it's also in Romania, it's also little Moldova um, has welcomed uh, the Ukrainians in as well, and, and that strong support. Uh, Mike's right about the European publics leading the elites. Um, in the United States, uh, the support has been very strong, very strong, um, and and bipartisan. So this is an indication of where the United States and the alliance that the Biden administration has put together stands with regard to these these movements. Ambassador McFall, uh, last week the Post reported that uh, the Biden administration believes the next several weeks are particularly critical uh, as the Russian military uh, amounts what everyone seems to think is uh, is an offensive of some duration. Uh, what is the broadest concern uh, there in terms of this happening in the winter? And of course, they had been pushed back on their heels uh, in late fall. What are the stakes now for uh, Putin uh, since he hasn't been uh, coy about telegraphing this. Well, you're right. There's an anticipation of a counteroffensive, and some already said it started. Uh, again, military general, former generals that are more expert on these things than I am, uh, always uh, caution that they have shown little um, uh, ability to, to move in a counteroffensive way so far, and nothing's really changed in terms of their capabilities and, and logistics to suggest that they'll be successful. But, but if you watch Russian press and listen, uh, I fully expect that there'll be something major coming uh, forward. Uh, Mr. Putin obviously is frustrated uh, with the conduct of the war. He changed the, the commander in charge uh, recently. That's a, you don't change your <laughs> generals in the middle of a war when you're winning, you change your generals when you're losing. Uh, but he also thinks that time is on his side. He thinks that the, Russia has, uh, more people, more soldiers, and that's a fact they do. And he's counting on us to fade in terms of uh, staying the course. He's counting on us to lose interest, particularly the United States of America. Um, and, and he thinks that when that happens, that will turn the tide in terms of the balance of power on the, on the battlefield. Um, and I, I think it's important for us to prove him wrong. Uh, Amb Ambassador Taylor, one of the uh, surprising things to some folks through the last year, through the first year of this war, uh, has been the resilience of the Ukrainian military. Uh, you noted, I believe, that uh, NATO had been doing some training uh, in previous years after 2014, but have you been surprised uh, by the sophistication and resilience of, of the Ukrainians? And, and what to what do you most attribute it? You know the country. So, Mike, the Ukrainian people are the source of that strength. Um, the Ukrainian people are the ones that have supported their president, President Zelensky. Uh, president Zelensky, Zelensky represents them. That's a bond between the two, between the president and the people. 
Um, and that then translates into the military. The military has been, as you say, they've been training with NATO forces, NATO trainers, NATO equipment, NATO experience, NATO tactics um, since 2014. More intensely, of course, um, uh, since uh, since since February 24th, have have these weapons gotten in? So the, the Ukrainian military, no, it's not a surprise that they're fighting. We knew they would would fight. What was surprising was the Russians did so poorly, uh, fought so poorly, um, and the Ukrainians took advantage of that. The Ukrainian military, led by a very savvy, sophisticated general, General Zaluzhny, very closely supported by President Zelensky, um, has been brilliant. Um, when we go back, when histori military historians look at this campaign, they're going to be learning lessons uh, from General Zelensky and the Ukrainian military um, about how to use forces um, and how to send fake messages, false messages, feints uh, to the Russians and then attack where they're not expecting it um, and succeeding and succeeding. And if they get the weapons and the support that they are promised, that this President Biden says, as long as it takes, and I would add, to win, as long as it takes to win, um, they will be able to do that. And getting to your point about timing, um, they need it soon. Uh, the Ukrainians need that support right now so that they can take advantage of the relative weakness. I mean, the, the Russians take time to mobilize. They take time to train. They take time to get these new forces to the front. And the Ukrainians, can, if they can strike first um, or, or strike back as, as a counteroffensive, then they, will, they can win this war. Ambassador McFall, you know, in, in Russia, public opinion isn't quite as important uh, as it is in, in a democracy. Um, but have you seen any evidence in the, in the last year or recently that uh, what people in Russia think matters or puts any pressure on Putin, especially as casualties mount? Yeah, Mike, that's a hard question because, A, it's not a democracy, so he's not thinking about the next electoral cycle. Uh, and B, we don't have very good ways to, uh, to actually measure public opinion in Russia. We need to be honest about that. I, if I have one critique of some of our Western newspapers is they publish opinion polls from Russia. Uh, they never publish what the non-respondent rate is in those public opinion polls because the companies don't want to put them out there. I've been told there's a high as 70 or 80 percent. So if they're 80 percent and you're just polling the 20 that willingly talk to you, uh, you're not getting a, a good sample of what's there. But I would say a few things in terms of, you know, some other proxies of measurement of what we know. Um, one, when Putin announced his mobilization, partial mobilization, uh, last uh, September, uh, as many Russians, and maybe more, it's hard to count because we don't have good numbers, uh, way to track them, but it looks like more Russian men left Russia than actually signed up for this war. That's a data point about how popular the war is, right? Number two, uh, when the war started, all the opposition media, most of it operating outside of Russia, uh, all of their numbers went way up. And then when mobilization was announced, as, as one of my Russian friends said, Mike, the war didn't start for us on February 24th. The war started on September when Putin announced mobilization because suddenly that meant the war impacted everybody in Russia. When that happened, all those numbers jumped up uh, very high as well. Alexei Navalny, he's the leader of the opposition. He's sitting in jail. Uh, his colleagues are still operating outside of the country. All of their numbers on YouTube are also way up. So those are all just little indicators 
that that actually, you know, it's not all might the, the support may not be as robust as it might seem if you're just looking at those opinion polls. And then last, I would say about elites. Um, you know, I used to work in Moscow before I was uh, uh, put on the sanctions list uh, in 2014. Uh, but you might be surprised at how many of those people still uh, are in interaction with me, in part because they're on the sanctions list now and they're trying to get off. Um, my sense of Russian economic elites is that nobody supports this war. It's a disaster for their businesses, especially those that, that of course, that rely on trade or investment with the outside world. Now, they're not saying that. They're, they're keeping their head down. They don't want to be on the wrong side of Putin. But, but the idea that there's enthusiasm from this war from uh, economic elites, I think, is also there's little evidence from that. And then the last thing, just remember, uh, everybody likes a winner. Everybody likes when you're winning. Uh, Putin's losing the war. And that begins to even, you know, uh, foments too strong a word, but, but fuel resentment within his own elite. So, you know, even his propagandists on TV, they're all kind of depressed right now uh, that there hasn't been more um, uh, uh, advancements. Uh, these bloggers, these military bloggers, they're, they're upset. Uh, Mr. Prigozhin, a guy that runs this, this uh, private army fighting in Ukraine, he's criticizing the, the conventional armed forces. Those are signs that things are not going as well as they would like. Okay, let me turn it around a little bit for you, Ambassador Taylor. You, you've used uh, so far today uh, the phrase winning the war more than I expected. Um, uh, and I know that is an increasing view uh, among many and probably in Ukraine. Do you think that is the view inside the Biden administration that this war can be won, uh, capital W? I do. I do, Mike. I think they, I've, I've heard officials say this. I've heard uh, Biden administ uh, administration people say win, victory. Um, and then the question is, OK, what is victory? What is winning? Right. It's very simple. The Ukrainians, it's, it's very simple. The Ukrainians, they want the Russians out of their country. That's a win. That's victory. Now, it doesn't have to happen immediately. Some of it is going to happen immediately. Some of it is going to be military pushing the Russians out. Some, however, is going to take longer, and it might even be diplomatically. Um, if the military goes well, if the if this counteroffensive or offensive goes well, and they push way back, push the Russians way back out, um, that could set the stage for some kind of a conversation. And that that conversation, that diplomacy, could could get the rest of the Russians out of their country. So uh, this could happen a over time. It can happen militarily. Um, quickly, um, and then B, diplomatically, or taking a little more time. So that's what winning is. Winning, is, the basic concept is, is simple, and that is all the Russians out of Ukraine. And that's that goes back to what something Mike said earlier about, about territorial integrity, about UN principles, about sovereignty. Um, you want the Russians out of the country. You don't, you don't want there to be a violation, an acceptance of a violation of territorial integrity or sovereignty, you want them out of the country. That's winning. And yes, I think the administration is there. Uh, Ambassador McFall, do you have the, you're both, both of you are seasoned diplomats. Do you have any sense that there may come a time when your former colleagues at the State Department actually, I don't want seek a, a, a deal ahead uh, of what looks like uh, the return of all of Ukraine? Uh, uh, from Russia, or is that something that is no longer a viable option? 
Well, if you listen to Mr. Putin today, it doesn't sound very viable right now. Uh, and I think we need to be very sober about that. Um, he thinks, like I said before, that time is on his side. And I, I want to be clear. I, uh, we didn't predict what was going to happen in the first days of the war. People that were are paid to predict these things. So I don't want to pretend that I know, you know what's going to happen three months from now, six months, or God forbid, two years from now. Um, what happens in the first year of the war is not always the way wars end. We know that from historical experience. But right now, there's no sign that I can see that Putin is interested in negotiating. Um, at a minimum, if you listen to him closely, uh, he wants to, quote unquote, liberate the territories that he annexed on paper. You know, he had a big ceremony where he annexed four regions of Ukraine and said these are now part of the Russian Federation. They already have maps out with these regions as part of the Russian Federation. Think about that. Uh, and so I think it's until he has either succeeded in that, that would be tragic, of course, or no longer has the ability to fight on the battlefield to achieve that, I, I see very little uh, opportunity uh, for negotiation. Having said that, I want to remind uh, something that you guys said, I think it's really important to underscore. We said Ukraine... Uh, all that it, as long as it takes to win. But defining to win, that's a very elastic term. Uh, and it's elastic for Putin, first and foremost. Uh, he, can, he can declare win any, any day, as far as I'm concerned. There's too many people using the rat in the corner metaphor, off ramps. We have to give him that. You have to give him that because if not, crazy Vladimir is going to do something, you know, uh, catastrophic for the world. I, I radically disagree with that analysis. He could literally tomorrow, if he wanted to, he doesn't want to, but he could say, we've won. Uh, and here's the, here's the, here's how that term is elastic. He could say, we defended the people of Donbass. Uh, we've liberated them from the threat of the, the Nazis in Kiev. And most importantly, he could say, we were threatened by attack from NATO and we stopped that attack in Ukraine so that it didn't come to Russia. I think our listeners, our watchers need to understand that when, when you listen to Putin speak and you listen to Russian uh, government officials speak and their propagandists on TV, they never talk about the war with Ukraine. They talk about the war with NATO that they are fighting. They, after all, how could they, how do you explain otherwise how they're losing to Ukraine? That makes no sense from their, their mentality, the way they set this war up. They always describe this as a, this, a uh, war against NATO, uh, and they akin to the war against the Nazis back in World War II. So stopping NATO, that could be the definition of win if Putin wanted to take it. Tragically, I don't think he's there yet. Ambassador Taylor, we only have a minute left, but in, in, since we're talking about understanding Vladimir Putin, uh, what did you make of his remarks overnight about suspending uh, the START Treaty, uh, which of course dates to the Reagan era and limits uh, nuclear weapons? Well, actually, it's the New START Treaty that dates to the Obama era, and Mike will, Mike will know about this. Um, uh, and it's a disappointment um, that they have not allowed inspections. Um, they've not even taken the opportunity to have a conversation with the Americans about extending the New START Treaty. Um, so this is irresponsible. This is of a piece uh, with the Putin administration's work. Uh, Ambassador McFaul, yeah, you agree? Other thoughts about that? statement, which was uh, tra tra some, tragically, I do agree. I, uh, I was one of, part of the team that helped to negotiate the New START Treaty. 
um, flew with President Obama to Prague when he signed it with President Medvedev. It was a major achievement. We got rid of 30% of the nuclear weapons in the world. Uh, that's good for the United States, good for Russia, good for the world. And importantly, that inspections regime helps to reduce uncertainty in both countries about what the respective countries are doing with nuclear weapons. So this is a giant setback, uh, tragically, for the United States and Russia. I hope it's a temporary setback, but I fear it's uh, a long-term setback. Uh, you have both been terrific. Uh, but unfortunately, we're out of time. Michael McFaul, former uh, ambassador to Russia, thank you for joining us. And uh, Bill Taylor, former ambassador to Ukraine, thank you as well. Thank you, Mike. Bye-bye. Thanks for having us. Thanks for listening. For more information on our upcoming programs, go to WashingtonPostLive.com.